0: Good morning to you. In 1978, Billy Joel released his sixth studio album, and it has since gone platinum seven times over. See if you recognize this hit. I don't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore, this is... My life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. In 2000, Bon Jovi released their seventh studio album, Crush. And Crush has gone platinum two times over, carried by a hit that went like this. This ain't a song for the brokenhearted. No silent prayer for the faith departed. I ain't going to be just a face in the crowd. You're going to hear my voice when I shout it loud. It's my life. Now in Bon Jovi's song there is a line in homage to another crooner from another era and that song was on the UK's top 40 for 75 weeks. It is a record that still stands today all the way from I believe 1969 and this song's iconic lyrics go like this. Yes there were times I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and I spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall. I did it my way. Why have those words so resonated across decades and genres and artists? There appears to be something deeply ingrained in the fallen human condition, enjoining us to defiantly shake our fist and say, it's my life, I'll do what I want. The Corinthians, back in their day, they had their slogans too, and they vociferously voiced those slogans to one another. They had slogans that fragmented their congregations into factions. And we already visited those slogans. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. But today, we're in the back half of 1 Corinthians 6. And the Corinthians are again bantering their slogans. And this time, their slogans were a license for licentiousness and a permit for promiscuity. They argued with their their catchy catchphrases that they have the freedom to do as they please. And so their new slogan was this, all things are lawful for me. And then they added, hey, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And they were essentially saying, you know what, if I have certain urges, it's only fitting that I indulge those desires because they were designed to be satisfied or I wouldn't have them and Paul is going to show that there's a kernel of truth in these slogans but there's a husk that is lost and an ear that we still need to hear and three times Paul uses a phrase that's intended to phase so we pause and reflect instead of gloss over and neglect something critically important in that discussion When Paul wanted to get the Corinthians' attention, he would say, do you not know? He uses that phrase a lot in this book when he wants to get their attention. Paul has already asked just in our chapter in previous uh, weeks together, in verse 2 he said, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And today we come to three more do-you-not-knows. But sadly, it would seem that these were areas that were either unknown or at least unheeded by the carnal Corinthian congregation. In verse 15, Paul asks, do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? In verse 16, do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? In verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with the price. So glorify God with your body. Now, Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. So in our sex-soaked society, we too may find these Scriptures highly enlightening in 2019. Given how riven our culture is with sexuality and sensuality, given how ensnared so many are today by sensuality, we will be spending the next several Sundays mining this sobering subject in the back of 1 Corinthians 6. And so I want to invite you to pray for these four Sundays together in September, that this would be a powerful correction to the sensual infection that is causing so much destruction in our nation and in our congregations. Pray that, that, that this biblical information over four Sundays would spur us on to biblical transformation that affects our Mondays. Pray that we might no longer be conformed to the ways of this world and and its broken understanding of our sexuality and instead we'd be renewed in our minds so that we're able to discern the will of God regarding the stewardship of our sexuality. That we might embrace what is good, what is acceptable, and what is pure in this particular area. Pray that we might learn from Instead of have to live out this New Testament proverb as a dog returns to its vomit and a sow that's washed returns to the mud. To do that, we must turn to the Word of God. And that is in 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, please use one of ours in the Blue Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 is on page 12, 14. And as you turn in the Word of the Lord... Let's turn to the Lord of that Word and see about it's my life. Or is it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we spend September, four Sundays on this subject, they get a brief break next week when Jason is with us, but then it's back. Lord, it wasn't my design to spend so much time in this delicate but needed subject, but it was Your plan. You kept giving me... Uh, more and more uh, material. Uh, And so I pray that this material would wash us and recalibrate us. And we are so bent and so twisted and so inundated and so uh, repeatedly hammered by the blows of the culture and the lure of the flesh and the temptations of the devil uh, that uh, we need to remember that this is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. No temptation has seized us that is not common unto man. And we can see in the Corinthian congregation the drippings of the trappings of the honey that's meant to keep us stuck in the bear trap. So we pray, Lord, that you would release us by your Spirit, redeem us by your Word, and help us to walk in newness of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside of his body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Now, the immediate context of our passage is verse 11. And in verse 11, we were reminded that as Christians, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, friends, God's washing has a way of trickling down to our lowest points. God's cleansing doesn't just seek to sanctify our Sunday mornings. He wants to sanctify our Friday nights. In 1 Corinthians 6, we see that God isn't merely the Lord of our decisions in the courtroom, first part of the chapter, but also in our bedroom, second part of the chapter. Jesus desires and deserves to be the Lord of every recess of us. For we are His temples, and He signed the title deed to every facet of every believer by His own blood, didn't He? Therefore, Jesus doesn't just save our souls. He lays claim to our bodies. To put it more plainly, if Jesus is not Lord of all, is He our Lord at all? Because lordship is kind of an all or none proposition. Well, we can't call Jesus Lord of our spirituality and not call Him Lord of our sexuality. Which brings us to point one today, the one point we want to hammer home in our time together in our first bit in this series in September on this seminal subject. Point one is this, it's not a pointless sermon, you have one point, all right? Point one is this, we need to understand that as believers, we're not our own. We have been bought with a price. That's the one thing we're going to put through today as a foundation for all we'll say in all the Sundays yet to come on this subject. We need to understand that as believers, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Now, God is not the author of confusion. So there is always a structure to every Scripture. And today, our passage has what they call an inductive structure. That means it starts with a whole bunch of points that eventually filter down to the point. It's like an upside-down pyramid. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Boom. The big stuff. And so, 1 Corinthians 6 gives us the big idea of all God's trying to say in this passage, the very end. Everything flows to verses 19 and 20. And so I want you to look at verses 19 and 20. That is the big idea of the back half of 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. The Christian has a master. And it's not himself. It's his Lord. The word bought is the Greek word agarazzo. Now, agarazzo means to become the property of another through a purchase of that property. It's a word that alludes back to the slave market, where instead of mere money that purchased ourselves from slavery to sin and debt and death and the devil, but rather it's the blood of Jesus that was paid to release us. That's what secured our purchase was our Lord's precious blood. It's the very same word used in Revelation 5-9. In Revelation 5-9, the Bible says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, speaking of Christ, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood. You agarazzo, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This concept of our being bought by the blood of God's one and only Son goes right to the very heart of the Gospel. It's a Christian essential. Uh, we must not skip over this as, as incidental or inconsequential. No, friends. The blood of Christ in our redemption is vital. Ephesians 1, 7 and 10. You might write it in the margin of your Bible. Ephesians 1, 7-10 says, in Jesus... We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven, and things on earth. See, God has a plan. His plan for our redemption has been set in motion through the sinless life, the atoning death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the plan. That's the plan. That's the plan. Now this grand gospel plan, the Bible says, was set in forth in Christ. It's not religion. It's not good works. It's not do-gooderism. It's not anything. It's not being evangelical free. It's not coming to Calvary. It's in Christ. And that plan started in Genesis and it continued on to Revelation. And every page of the Bible has a scarlet thread running through it. The first letter of the Hebrew Bible begins with a, a, a bait, and the last letter of the New Testament ends with a new. And those two letters, bait and new, in Hebrew would be ben. <laughs> and ben in Hebrew means son. You can go from the first verse to the last and it's going to take you to one place and that's Jesus Christ. And when you read the Gospels and it talks about Jesus Christ, every single one of the Gospels will spend at least 25% of its overall verses on one subject the last week of Jesus, which takes us to the cross of Jesus, which takes us to the release found only through Jesus. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might be adopted as sons of God. Now, to redeem is the word ex agarazzo, which of course is a modification of agarazzo. Ex agarazzo means to deliver something from harm. Or evil. That is, through Christ, God is sheltering us. He's delivering us from harm and from evil by buying something back that it was given over to. The Old Testament speaks about God like a mother hen gathering, us under, uh, gathering his chicks under his wings. And you've heard the story about the fire that swept through uh, the mission station in Africa years ago, and a missionary walked by and just saw all the charred remains. When the, when the wrath came through and the fires burned across, everything was consumed the trees, the flowers, the mission station, everything. And then he heard life. There was a little click of a chick, and it was alive. And he went over and he heard this noise, and he went over and, and he saw no chickens, uh, no, no little chicks, but he heard a chick, and then he saw a mother hen. And it was dead. It had burned to death. And he kicked the chicken, just kind of pushed it over, and what came out? But the baby chick. You see, Jesus Christ is willing to take the wrath, the fire. He's willing to give you safety under His wings. In 2019, in our Sex Soaked Society, You can't so much as sell a Carl's Jr. hamburger without a crescendo of innuendo. And we need to understand that as believers, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. If if you have, in faith, reached out to God's grace in Jesus Christ, then you have forgiveness for all of your trespasses. Your debt is paid in full. But friends, how was that achieved? God didn't just forget about our debt. That would make God an unjust judge if He could simply turn a blind eye to iniquity and say that the unjust are now just and isn't that fun. Abraham was right in Genesis 18-25. Far be it from God to do such a thing, treating the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? So God has to do right even though He wants to make us righteous. So, a righteous judge must punish sin. Justice demands that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And here's the thing. Either you can pay your sin debt, or God can pay your sin debt through Christ. But someone will pay. We use this analogy. We've used it before. If I owed $400 to PSE&G, or they're going to turn the lights off on the parsonage, 42 Welsh Road, I can either go online or send a check or go down to their office and give them $400 and tell them that's for 42 Welsh Road and they will keep my lights on. Now, I can pay that, but let's say there's some wonderful saint here. Dan, you're a wonderful saint, aren't you? And so Dan goes, Sean needs his lights on. I'm going to go to PSE&G and I'm going to tell them, put my $400 to 42 Welsh Road and keep those lights on. PSE&G doesn't care if I pay it or Dan pays it. They just care that it's... Paid to keep those lights on. You see, you can either pay for what you owe yourself, or if someone was so gracious and magnanimous who was willing to do it for you, you'd be a fool not to let them. But someone must pay that bill. The debt must be paid in full. If you only pay twenty five dollars, your power still goes off. Because the debt is four hundred. Now friends, when our Lord was hanging on the cruel cross at Calvary, one of the seven cries from the cross was the Aramaic cry, Tetelestai. Do you know what that means? That means paid. It actually doesn't. It means it is finished. It is finished. When Jesus hung on the cross, He said, it is finished. Three of the most important words you'll ever hear in the English language. Now, when Paul describes... How we're saved. Remember when he said in verse 11? That we're sanctified, we're washed, we're justified. What does he mean by justified? He means that it's paid in full. When Jesus was on the cross, that's when it was paid in full. That our debt can be canceled and the righteousness of Christ can be put in our account and we will be declared righteous before a holy God Because the Bible says that we each have a problem. We've each gone our own way. We've each gone astray. We we daily fall short of the aspiration of our creation. We were created to bring glory to God. That's why we were created. But we fall short of that, don't we? Sometimes we do that unintentionally and accidentally. Sometimes we do it willfully and stridently. I'll do it... Sell a lot of records. A lot of people will sing along. But see, whether we've done it accidentally and unintentionally or willfully and stridently, you and I have transgressed against an infinitely holy God. That's what sin is. Now, what is the appropriate punishment for willfully, stridently rebelling against a being who's infinitely holy? The Bible says infinite holiness when transgressed would require an eternal punishment. And that math works. You see, infinite holiness has been transgressed, so eternal punishment is the only consequence in order. That's why a single sin sends someone to eternal condemnation not because God is some overbearing ogre, but because of the magnitude of the one in whom you've sinned against is so great that the consequence has to be commiserate to the offense. Let's use grass to mow down this concept in case you're already you talking about. all right, We all have we know what grass is, right? So, so if I walk on the grass, right? <laughs> and in the Marines, they had signs everywhere. Don't walk on the grass, right? And, and if you walked on the grass... Someone would yell at you and tell you not to. That was pretty much what would happen. Maybe they'd have you do some push-ups, but basically, if you walked on the grass, you would be told not to walk on the grass. I've transgressed against a sign. My punishment is rather small. Now, right here in Essex Fells, they like things neat and tidy, don't they? And so, if I decided we're not going to mow the grass at 42 Welsh Road and and until my grass gets untidy and unwieldy and excessively lengthy and these poor folks have to drive by in their nice cars and see this untidy lawn, eventually, the town of Essex Fells would come a-knocking. And they would levy a fine because the offense is now against the whole town and our property values. That's not okay. And so now it's gone from just don't do that to this is going to cost me something. All right? Suppose I grow another kind of grass. And I peddle it to the children at the primary school down the road. The law is going to come to my house one day and they're going to put me in prison for corrupting minors. Do you see how the penalties increase depending on the magnitude of what has been transgressed? So put that in perspective regarding our rebellion against Almighty God. Suppose the Bible is exactly true. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and it was good and it was good and it was good. Suppose an all-good God created an all-good world, and then He fashioned the apex of His creation with a special endowment to make personal, moral choices that the animals cannot. They rely on instinctive, uh, uh, animalistic inclinations, but we have the rational capacity, we're made in the image of God, we can choose moral decisions. Now suppose this good God endowed this new creation, we're going to call it humanity, with the capacity to love Him back from their heart. We, of all of creation, have the capacity to love God back from our hearts, from the very start. I want you to remember, love is important to God. God didn't have to create us. God gives us life, and it's in Him that we live and we move and we have our being. Love is important to God because God is love. The Bible doesn't say God is wrath. He has wrath. The Bible doesn't say God is justice. No, God has justice. But God is love. It's who He is at His core. Okay, so love is important to God because God is love. Well, look at how God existed. God existed eternally before the heavens and the earth, the angels and you and I and everything else. God existed eternally in, in a perfect love relationship between the Trinity. God the Father loved God the Son. And God the Son loved God the Spirit. And God the Spirit loved God the Son and God the Father. And that went on and on for as far back as there ever was into eternity past was the eternal, perfect love of God between the three members of the Trinity without ever a blip or a blemish or a break. And then God said, I'm going to extend that love. I'm going to take this wonderful, perfect, pure love And I'm going to create a world out of love. And I'm going to create people out of love. And I'm going to invite those people to love me and they wouldn't exist without me. So He created us so that we could love Him back. Now that's wonderful. That's beautiful. And now now enters something horrible. This creation made by love. This creation made in love. This creation made for love. Well, it made a terrible decision. A decision... Not to love. I want to do it my way. Jesus says, if you love me, sing me songs that say so. Nope. If you love me, write me Hallmark poetry so I know so. Buy me chocolates on God Day. No. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. You know what, friends? That's a really fair way to gauge whether someone really loves you. Anybody can say how much they love you. But if they won't love you through their actions, you'll learn that their words are just words. A man can tell a woman that he loves her, but then if he runs around town on her, those words are sort of invalidated by her experience. Amen? Yeah. If there's a lack of obedience to love's exclusiveness, you have a right to say, is this love? So, God fully and beautifully and undeservedly loved us entirely. In love, He created us and He invited us to love Him back. And how did we do on that front? Not so good. Not so good. God put us in paradise. He gave us a perfect spouse, fit just for us. Like, I don't know how your spouse is, but that spouse was just right. And it was out of sight. He writes the first poem when He sees her. He puts us in a lavish garden laden with every kind of provision. And He gave us total freedom to subdue the earth and enjoy special times of fellowship, walking in the garden in the cool of the day with God Himself. And then He gave us a one-verse Bible. One verse. Enjoy everything. Do anything. Except just one thing. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the very first time, the very first time we're ever tempted on that point, how did we do? We folded like a house of cards. Did we love God by obeying His one commandment? Or did we eat the forbidden fruit? Because we thought we knew better than God Almighty, who made us and loved us warned us. Friends, instead of loving God by obeying a one-verse Bible, we rejected God by strain. And what our parents taught us in the garden we have been getting better at over the millennia. In direct defiance to Jesus, we did what was right in our own eyes, just like the people in the book of Judges did for 332 years. And we encouraged all the others around us to join us And sing along, it's my life. Well, rebellion of that magnitude, rebellion against an entity infinitely holy, would require a punishment that extends into eternity. And indeed, that's just what the Bible teaches. Jesus warns us in Matthew 25, 46, that the wicked will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous unto eternal life that's the bad news 1 Thessalonians 1:10 gives us good news Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath Jesus rescues us from the wrath that is to come there's going to be a fire of the wrath of an almighty God. And it will consume everything in rebellion unless you've already made peace with God. And peace can only come through the Prince of Peace who signed the peace treaty through the blood of His one and only Son. How can that be? Romans 3.23 shows us the secret. How can God remain just and yet simultaneously be our justifier? How can mercy triumph over judgment? Through the blood of Jesus. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what sin is, to fall short of the glory of God. You were created for His glory, and we've missed that. We can miss it by millimeters, we can miss it by miles, but we miss that. And we are justified freely by His grace. You can't earn it, you can only say, Lord, I need it, I want it, I'll take it. Now, this grace only comes through redemption that came by Christ Jesus and God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice at the present time so that God could be both just and justifier. He's just in that the guilt is punished. And He's justifier in that the guilty can be pardoned because Jesus, who didn't deserve it, well, He took the blow. Have you ever seen, like, in a, sitting around the campfire at youth camp, they'll bring out the youth pastor, and he doesn't say a lot, but he has, like, all these object lessons. <laughs> and, and one of the object lessons that actually works <laughs> is they take a very soft egg, and they bring a hammer, and they talk about the wrath of God coming down. Now, what happens if the hammer hits the egg? Splat, and that's that. But if you take a steel cup and you put it over the egg, and you hit that hammer onto that egg, you're going to glance off the steel cup. Friends, the wrath of God is coming, but it's already hit Jesus and it'll glance off of you. But if you reject Jesus, well then all that's left is a fearful expectation of judgment before a holy God. Friends, this is the great exchange in how one becomes a Christian. Jesus takes our sin on His shoulders at the cross and freely offers His righteousness to our account. And in so doing, Jesus redeems us. He buys us back. Now, if Jesus purchased us, and if the purchase price was the precious blood of God's one and only Son, well, friends, you know what that means by application? We're not our own. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price, so we ought to glorify God with our Bodies. The ransom was handsome. The price was gruesome. But this ransom leads to freedom. It's not a freedom to grieve our Lord and harm our witness. It's a freedom to glorify our Lord and live in such a way that we become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which we shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life to those caught in the snares of death. You and I as blood-bought believers are now the personal possession of God Almighty. That means what we do with our bodies is not left to us entirely any longer. Now, where was this written? This was written to the saints in Corinth. They're hearing these truths, and this is the world they lived in. In the moral sewer of ancient Corinth, this was a sobering understanding for those saints to begin apprehending and then applying right Where the rubber meets the road. In the sensuality and sexuality of ancient Corinth came the truth of Christ who redeemed us. I want you to remember the the Corinthians were surrounded on their way to church as they went around their day. Every night, a thousand female prostitutes descended from the great temple of Aphrodite, beckoning folks to engage their basis appetites in, a, in, a, in an affair, they didn't call sensual or sexual; they called it spiritual. Come worship with us at the temple. Hey, friends! The devil knows how to hold a seeker service. <laughs> Think about that. In the Old Testament, the devil knew that then too. In the Old Testament, Satan tried the very same thing with the Israelites. There were these sexual frenzies and orgies that would happen on the top of mountains. To get the fertility god Asherah and Baal to, to be fertile and bring down the rains that would bring the crops. And so there was a seeker-sensitive service in their day as well. What your fresh flesh craved, you could do and call it worship in the Old Testament or in the New. And so here in Corinth are, are saints who are hard-pressed by the, by the temple prostitutes of Aphrodite who are seeking worshipers nightly. Never, never stops. There's never a break. It just comes at you every day. Now, if heterosexual sensuality was not your orientation, Satan had other options. Alongside the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was the temple of Apollo, and which sent out its homosexual male prostitutes out on the prowl each night as well. It didn't matter which flavor you needed, there was diabetes waiting for you at the ice cream parlor. Friends, there's nothing new Under the sun. In 1964, the animals warned us about the house of the rising sun, which was the ruin of many a poor boy. And the writer says, And Lord, I know I'm one. What was true in Corinth is true here. In Corinth, it was these temples that would trip you up. Now, Corinth was a port city, and so it harbored many sailors seeking a night's liberty from the ship's restriction. And since there's nothing new under the sun, I want you to think about our cities that have historically been port cities. Uh, cities like New Orleans and San Francisco. Paragons of morality in our history, right? Oh, remember that ancient Corinth was a destination city. People would come from all over the Greco-Roman world every two years to see the Grand Isthmian Games. And they would travel very far from the prying eyes of their wives. And today, people travel to Vegas. Vegas. To take in the shows and stroll the casinos. And, uh, but there's another side to Vegas, right? People like to kid themselves, and the city makes a pretty penny peddling this lie. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But that's a lie. Friends, ancient Corinth was dripping with the whisperings of Satan's seductions to trip up even the blood bought saints of Jesus Christ. If only the Bible were relevant today. If only the Bible understood the world we contend with. If only Scripture could understand our modern world where you can't so much have as a commercial to sell a bar of soap to get clean without someone alluring in the shower making your thoughts dirty. In like manner, these Corinthians, friends, they had no respite from this. A Temptation was all around them. It surrounded them. It constantly was pushed in front of them. Can you relate to that situation? Maybe you've discovered that piped into our homes and indeed carried around in our phones is a teeming cauldron of anonymous seduction in every nuance of amorous temptation. Our world and the Corinthians world, not so different. Not so different. At least our temptations are mostly virtual. Theirs were actual. Rarely in Essex fells have I been nightly propositioned from anyone representing Aphrodite's temple. How about you? I've got it easy compared to these saints. But friends, against the moral sewer of ancient Corinth was the moral victor of the eternal Christ. Against the moral sewer of ancient Corinth was the moral victor of the eternal Christ. To combat the yearn of the flesh is the reminder of the pain of Christ who agonized to redeem our flesh and to release us from the bondage of being prisoners to our basest desires. What was the antidote? to the sexual promiscuity that pervaded their vicinity with such strident tenacity causing those believers to struggle mightily while their witness to the world hung precariously. And it's this. This is the antidote. It's this simple statement of Scripture. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Friends, in a sex soaked society, God's remedy to rampant iniquity is the entirely biblical and utterly countercultural reality that the believer's body is for God's glorification not just our personal gratification. Because that's how we think about it in 2019. right? God's Word teaches that our bodies are gifts. That we're to steward. They're temples that we ought to keep sacred. And and, and back in in chapter 4, in verse 2, Paul told us it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. So Calvary Church, How are we doing in the stewardship of our bodies? Now, God's message to the Corinthians, the same message He gave to the Romans. So we're going to make a tour. Go to the left of Corinthians and go to Romans 14.7. Romans 14.7 is on page 1207. God's standard didn't change just because the location changed. From Corinth to Rome... The central tenor of Scripture on this subject is exactly the same. Romans 14.7, page 1207. Romans 14.7 says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord! For to this end Christ died and lived again that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So, whether we live in the Sodom of Corinth or we have a week of conventions in Vegas, the same truth they must hear is the same truth we must hear if they must be in their capital of Rome or we take a trip six hours down to our capital far from home. Romans 14:7 says this, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself, for if we live we live to the Lord, and if we die we die to the Lord, so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now, Many of us know this. How many of this, this was brand new? I didn't know God wanted me to be holy. That's new. Really inconvenient, too, but, but new. Is it new today? Is this a new truth today? Are you shocked by this? Probably not. Many of us know this, but we struggle to live this, don't we? Because we're sinners. And that's why God is repeating this to us today. God had to repeat this truth to the Corinthians again in the second letter he wrote to them. Uh, Turn to page 1228, and let's go to 2 Corinthians 5, 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. You're going to see that it's very close to Romans 14. You're going to see that it's very close to 1 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. God says it again to the same audience because the temptation didn't stop. You can hear a truth once and need to hear it again. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, so, so to the cosmopolitan Christians of Corinth, if they needed to review this, what about the kind of saints who were blessed to grow up somewhere somewhat less worldly? Like, not everybody grows up in Corinth, right? Some of you grew up in an idyllic environment. It was Mayberry RFD, and you rode your bicycle to the store and got a penny cool, and like it was, you know, really sweet. What if we were blessed to possess such a heritage where we were weaned on biblical truth from the day we were born, that we were raised in a crib where someone sang us, Uh, hymns while they rocked us and, and, and they fed us scripture all of our life and mom and dad prayed for us and we went to a good church and it was all wonderful are we by virtue of such a unique pedigree immune to carnal proclivities the bible would say no the apostle peter writes to jewish background believers who became christians and they were scattered to the lesser centers of the Roman Empire, and their parents were probably very scrupulous adherents to Judaism before they came to Christ. And Peter writes, to those elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So he's taking them back to Jesus in His blood. Uh, These saints who knew from the cradle God's desires for the faithful To these saints who were in less overtly oppressive environments, they weren't living in Corinth, they were in little backwaters of the empire, Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed, heard that before? Knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, heard that before? Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now Peter writes a bit further in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Have we heard that before? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war with your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify the God on the day of your visitation. You see, not only are you a blood-bought saint and you belong to someone else, but what you do impacts how others understand the validity and reality of the efficacy of Jesus' death for you. The only Bible some people will ever read is our life. Does our life shine like bright stars in a wicked and depraved generation to the glory of God. Friends, over the next three Sundays, there are nine more principles to discover. But today, we just want to lay the foundation on this one principle. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price to glorify God with your body. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that Your Word is true. And amen. And there's nothing new under the sun. And we see again and again and again and again the same basic truths. No temptation has seized us except what's common unto man. And we see that, that what tripped up others trips up ourselves. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that You would help us to withstand the onslaught of our culture. What our flesh yearns for. Yeah. The stomach is made for food and food for the stomach. And and you've made all of our being and and all of our inclinations to have a, a, a satisfaction in Christ, but not a satisfaction in sin. And the devil masterfully tempts. And then the second we indulge, he then accuses. It doesn't start with accusation. He starts with the temptation. And then when we give in, He'll us with accusation. You are unworthy. God wants nothing to do with you. Don't go to church. Don't pray. He's sneaky that way. And so I pray that as we go to the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, and we think about the blood of Jesus Christ, His body that was broken and His blood that was shed, I pray, Lord Jesus, that... If there are those being enticed, they would remember they are not our own, but that they were bought with the price. And if there are those who are who have made. Um decisions that were less than Your best, that You would remind them that to tell us, die, it is finished. That You have put their sin as far as the east is from the west, and all we must do is confess and repent, and, and You will forgive us and cleanse us, and today is a new day. Today is the day the Lord has made. I cannot change yesterday, but I can change today, and that will impact tomorrow, and for some people, that will impact eternity. And so we pray, Lord, that we would walk worthy, in this tricky, tough, tempting matter of our sexuality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.